Welcome back once again to the Outdoor Station. Right, there's been, what, a week since the last podcast, and things have been ticking along as the way they do with this new property we're getting. Uh, obviously, the legal people are doing whatever it is the legal people do, drink tea, give you big bills, that sort of thing. And I'm having a meeting next week on site with Mr. Openreach about getting in some decent broadband Um, Did you know that it takes a month to get a meeting with Mr Openreach? A month? Isn't that ridiculous? The government are telling you they're trying to get broadband into anybody and get everybody up to speed really, really quickly. But it's two weeks for it to go through BT, then you've got to sit and wait ten days for it to go through Openreach, and then you've got to wait for the guy to do it. But, anyway, time will no doubt deliver us the result in the end but it's just a bit of a pain waiting around, knowing what you can and can't do. Now, um, people have been signing up for our newsletter. Thank you very much, everybody that's done so. I can read a few names out in a second and a few suggestions. Uh, But just to let you know, we have uh, moved along nicely with uh, some of the suggestions so far. And I'm just going to read out a few of the names who will be appearing in some random form very soon. Nikki Spinks, Jasmine Paris, Stormy Norman, Alex Roddy... Uh, Wildcat Gear, Alp Kit, and Emma Timmis. She ran across Africa. I've just got to catch up with her. So, who, who has signed up? Well, well, there's quite a few people signed up. I'm just going to read a few choice ones because they've made a few comments which are uh, quite interesting. Randomly going through several pages of paper, we have uh, Jason Herriot, uh, who suggested Sarah Oten. Sarah Oten? Now, that's not a name that's familiar with to me, so I shall Google her to see who she is. John Marshall, um, who thinks I should have a chat with the guy who walks up Helvelling every day to check the weather forecast. Uh, Liam Had, woo-woo in Sussex, a great camping spot. So I need to check that one out. Haven't done a lot on the camping spots just yet, to be fair, but I have done on the names where people want to hear a bit more. Um, Ali Al Halliday from Canada, welcome, thank you. Some nice comments from Roger Brakel, who loves the podcasts. Ian Harbert just discovered Shepherd's Walks, and they look interesting. And he's also suggested Ronald Turnbull. Wild Camp, question mark. Now, I was supposed to have a Wild Camp with Ronald Turnbull, um, was it last year or this year? I think it was the beginning of this year. Uh, and unfortunately, dates, weather or something changed. And it's a real shame, because I was really looking forward to it. Tony Wheeler, Sarah Jones, who suggested uh, Phoebe Smith again, and Chris Townsend. Uh, who else we got here? Uh, Mark Waters uh, suggested OMM. Must get in contact with them. Alex Wilson, loving the podcast. He suggested a small farm campsite in South Wales that allows semi-wild camping in the woods by the river. Uh, I can't quite read the email address, the website address, but I shall look into that one. Uh, Ian Galston, Tracker Tent, another one for Tracker Tent. Uh, William Logden, uh, great stuff, keep up the good work. Kevin Smith wants to hear more from P. Wiglet and Andy Howell. Well, whatever happened to them? P. Wiglet is up in Yorkshire somewhere, and Andy Howell is 
in his bedroom. Uh, and Brian Jones. So there's a good handful of names there of people that have joined the newsletter. Thank you very much indeed. Um, I'm pushing it really hard, as everybody knows. And there is a little uh, promo piece in the middle of this uh, podcast that just explains what you can do. But basically, join our newsletter. We can keep in touch with you with some of the things that's going to be happening very soon. And you can make suggestions as to companies, uh, small little cottage UK companies that are of interest. Uh, places of interest of God's camping and other people who may be interesting to talk to you'd like to know a bit more about so that's my list where we are at at the moment it's growing all the time so you're in good company now one person George Griffin suggested Quintin Lake uh, regarding the perimeter.uk um, as you will hear it's a fascinating story a fascinating project um, Quintin is a very 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 interesting and good photographer and he's walking around the perimeter of the UK in a set of stages uh, and recording it in his own style. Uh, he's also done several other walks as well which you can see on his website Greenland, uh, the Thames Walk, the Source of the Seven to the Sea and the Cambrian Way all of which are wonderful images and he is a professional photographer who survives on selling his images so do have a look and if one takes your fancy well, you know what to do. Press the button. So let's now go over to a conversation that I had with Quinton uh, only last week, in fact, and he tells us more about the project. So the, the, the perimeter, which is a photographic project walking around the coast of Britain, uh, so it's a 10,000-kilometre walk, which I'm doing in stages, um, and each day I'm trying to take a handful of photographs that I'm proud of that show the coast in a unique way. Um, and it came about by um, lots of our long-distance walks in the UK. So when I was 20, I walked from Lansdown to John O'Groats, and that led to a number of other walks. And in recent times, I combined photography with walking. And the first was a walk from the source of the Thames to London, and then that led to a longer walk from the Severn, from the source to the sea. And then the, the, the sea idea got under my skin. And, um, and when I was a, a child, I'd, I'd read um, John Merrill's book about walking around the coast. It had been there, always been there on the shelf. And then I thought, well, I'd, I'd like to do um, a project like that um, to try and say something new about the British coast. OK, so if we can just backtrack slightly. You are a commercial photographer with a specialism in architecture. That's right, yeah. With obviously a natural feel for the for the outdoors, as you explained. Yeah. The first walk you did then, the Thames, yeah. was how did that particular one come about? Did that come out as a project, or was that just a personal escape or a holiday? Or well, well actually, actually, I'd, I'd, because I'd done sort of physically difficult projects in the in the Arctic and desert and sort of tough travels, and, and I got meningitis, and I was I was floored. I I, I could hardly walk across the room, um, but yeah, and I wanted to to do something very gentle. That, that was essentially flat and that if I had a problem I'd be able to get out easily but I wanted to get back in my tent and, and do another um, walking project so I kind of came with it with a very kind of very very humble gentle approach to it and and ironically it turned out that that kind of calmness translated into better work for me. And from a photography point of view did you approach it to um, just this is the listeners obviously yeah. did you approach it from a, a point of view of taking the beauty and and sort of um, landscapes from a postcard picture type of look or were you looking for more of an abstract approach uh, well I, I tend to try and do a more abstract approach but I try not to pre-visualize what I'm going to do until I get there 
But about three days into it, I realized that I wanted to do a very abstract approach and, and focus mostly on the, the water and the reflections and the light. I mean, the Thames is beautiful, but it's not a grand, dramatic river like, like the Severn or, or Broad, something like the, um, the White Nile. It's not, it's not magnificent. It's gentle. So, um, so I found the best approach was to look at the small details of things. And then when you compare the, the subtlety at the beginning with, with, with London and how that changes, it, it, it gave an interesting series of work that worked together. And you said it was actually quite a successful commercial project. So what was the audience for it? Well, I, I didn't have a major plan for it. I just posted it on my blog and posted it on social media. But it, it seemed, I think, people thought it was a, a new way of looking at the Thames. So it got shared extensively and that led to a number of sales which made me think it 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 satisfied me creatively as well as commercially so i thought well i should do more of this (laughs) (laughs) so so there was a financial there was a financial part to it but that that wasn't the intention that wasn't the intention at all no no excellent okay i know another one i know you've done before we come on to the Mm. the perimeter is the ridgeway which is a um, an area or a a walk which although i haven't done it it sounds very romantic to me yes Uh, what was that like from a sort of a participation point of view uh, well, I, I highly, highly recommend it. It's, it is. I mean, it's, it's really stepping back into the most ancient part of, of the British Isles, and I mean, photographically, it was. I kind of, I only took a, as a telephoto lens. I took a four hundred mm lens only Gosh. for the whole thing, which t- traditionally for. Um, for listeners that, that, that aren't photographers, that's what you tend to see, those big white lenses you see in sports grounds or for photographing birds or um, some motor, motor racing. But the reason for that is that the Ridgeway is kind of quite gentle, but with these huge long views. So I was trying to compress the landscape and, and get these abstract, flattened versions of the sort of Wiltshire landscape as you're passing through. Um, it, it's it's also very very close to really big cities, but yet it feels like a world apart. So it's yeah, a, a wonderful experience. Yeah. So you really did feel like you're walking in the paths of ancient feet. Very much so. Yeah, yeah. And there's all these ancient earthworks, and and somehow because you're you're raised up and, and the cities sort of vanish a bit, it, it feels um, very much like that. Yes. Yeah, wonderful. So coming onto the perimeter, then this is well, as I understood it from looking at your your website, you set yourself a five year project. Yes, five year project. Uh, so why did you first of all set set it over five years, or rather than one, two, or ten? Yeah, well, there's there's um there's pragmatic as well as artistic reasons. So the um, artistic reasons is is I find that spending too long on a project, I kind of get burnout. It's like the idea that if you go to India and you see an extraordinary temple after a week, you yeah. don't notice it anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yet if you, if you went it just once every week, you'd, you'd be astonished again. So I find I, my, I can look at things fresher if I spend a more intense, shorter time on something. And I, I've, I've done multi-month projects in the past and it becomes a different kind of, it, it becomes much more of a, of a sort of mental and physical endurance rather than something where you're coming with creative, fresh eyes. Um, and and it meant that I could keep my commercial work going because I'm away for, you know, I expect in Scotland I'll maybe go for a month, but in the south of England, like tomorrow I'm going to, to Cardiff, to Barry, so that'll be a day trip um, or or like a week a week away. So for, so the, the benefit of five years was that um, I'm away for two or three months of the year, which means for my family and commercially that's a sustainable thing, whereas if I go away I, I think I'd, I'd um, lose my clients and my partner. <laughs> Yeah, it's always a, always a balance, a fine balance, <laughs> but certainly enjoyment rather than endurance. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you started off in London. Now, when? How long ago was that? Now that was um, Easter last year. 
Easter last year. Yeah. And I think when I just looked at your blog, you're about 25% of the way through. That's right, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah, so. So, so have you broken that down into sort of weeks at a time or literally just like a couple of days here and then a week later and, and that sort of randomness? Uh, it's, it's, it's random based on, on, on transport links and what makes sense with the landscape. So the remoter parts of Cornwall I went for, for 10 days, I think was the longest stretch. And, um, and it's just balancing the, the cost of the travel with, with the distance and the amount of time I'd lose to travel. So, I mean, from where I live, Kent was a long way away, so I did, did camp quite a bit along there too. Mm. Well, I mean, just, just that aside, actually, I know you don't drive a car, so yeah. how have you found the infrastructure regards travelling, getting to these coastal places, just as an, an aside? Uh, um, most of the time it's pretty easy. I, I, I really enjoy travelling by train and a bus, so, uh, and I... I don't, I don't have a problem with the, the travelling time, but there are definitely bits like kind of maybe around Minehead or the north of Devon where public transport is very awkward. You're kind of going against the grain to do that. You spend, it'll be like a couple of, tra- of trains and a bus, and then you've really spent mm, most part of the day to get there. Right. Landscape is obviously going to be one thing. No doubt the people you meet along the way as well. There must be a whole variety of... Uh, characters that you've met very much so yeah. and then i presume if you're wild camping which we'll come on to in more detail a bit later but there's also the discipline point of view because i know myself that when you're doing a coastal walk it's so easy to stop look at the view and just absorb the moment or yeah. talk to people locals yeah and all of a sudden it's the end of the day so how do yeah. you fit in the photography it is very difficult and i do allow myself to just enjoy the moment and enjoy chatting to people if that seems right but it i mean d- d- days can be different there can be days that are maybe sort of flatter in terms of, of interest that I'd, I'd imagined. Or there are some days where I'm very particular that I want to get a, to a particular landmark for a particular time because the light is going to be right and the weather that day. And then I might be a bit more antisocial that day. Um, but I do end up doing an awful lot of walking at night, especially with the, as, as the, the days get shorter. So if I kind of muck up or enjoy myself too much, I just I catch up the miles at night with a head torch. Oh, my word. Okay. <laughs> and I was going to say, what about the research you must, must do to go into, uh, as you say, planning that where the light's going to be at a certain time and making sure you're there? Do you do a lot of work here before you go, you know, Google huge, Earth and all the rest of it? A huge amount, yeah. So I'll, 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 look at, um, I'll look at the satellite map. I'll obviously look at the OS 1 to 25,000 maps. Um, then I'll look at the, um, the, the the Wikipedia map f- for for sites, and then I'll read guidebooks. And it, it I mean, sometimes I'll, I'll choose to be surprised, but more often than not, I, I kind of like to know what's what's coming up, so that I can I can know I need to wake get up early or or, or leave, you know, or, or sort of speed up to get to a certain place. Mm. You and your world camping uh, all the way, or as much as possible. As much I understand. As possible, yeah. uh, has that proved to be a bit of a problem at all, or is it fairly straightforward? Um, I mean, I, I love that, but it, um, you mean difficult physically or, or, well, pra- or with sort of... The practical aspect the landowners of yeah, or, landowners or, um, or just people generally. Uh, I always pitch as it's getting dark and I always break camp as the light's rising. So, And I, I never camp within line of sight of any property. So that's how I try and keep out of trouble, as it were. Mm. And with that approach, I haven't had any problems at all. In terms of finding a, a flat, suitable pitch... Um, most of the time that's fine. I mean, it's a single one-man tent. I mean, even I've sometimes just been right next to the path because it's been a patch big enough. Mm. Uh, water's a, a problem, um, especially by the coast because it's, it's runoffs from agricultural land. So I'm not sure even the best filters, I would trust them to get rid of agricultural chemicals. So um, water's been the biggest headache so far. I was going to uh, come yeah. on to that. Must, yeah. I mean, the few times I've done it, it's always been, actually, I can't see a tap anywhere. Yeah, the, exactly. Yeah. So, so I, I, I try and, and plan to get a um, fill the... You know, two-litre platypus early enough so that I, I can do that overnight without any pr- problems. 
Coming back to the photography then, yeah. do you set yourself a certain target as regards the number of pictures you're going to take per day? Um, I, I don't, but it's it's been quite consistent that if it's a, a really bad weather day, it'll end up being 70 pictures. But on, on And then it's a really a stunning day weather-wise, and, and in terms of interest, it will be five or 600. So the, the average has been about 300 pictures a day. Now, um, we were talking about the camera you're using. Um, I think it's a 50 meg, megapixel That's camera. Right, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's a... Because uh, I, I I produce and sell large format prints, so the resolution is very important for this work. So I, I use a, a Canon uh, 5DSR, which is currently the largest resolution full frame camera out there, and it's weatherproof and suitable for for backpacking. Although mm. it's quite heavy. <laughs> <laughs> well, as we come on to sort of the photography aspect, but I'm just thinking purely from my own experience, a mm. 50 megapixel um, image, and you're taking several hundred a yes. day. How do you, do you, or do you, do you back things up as you go along? Do you have a separate hard drive or some sort of system? No, no, I don't. I've, I've never had a problem with a SD card being corrupted. I mean, I, I, I baby them physically. They're sort of double protected against water when I'm in the field. Um, but when I get home, I, I do back them up. And of those 300, I let it down to 10 or 20 of the day that I'm proud of. And then I, I, I often bin the ones that I didn't make the shortlist. Mm. And then of that 20, maybe one or two I would produce as a print. Wow. Just thinking about the, the sheer numbers. Yeah. If you're talking four or 500 a day and you're away for 10 days, that's, well, 5,000. Yeah. Your discipline, your editing discipline must be quite ruthless when you come back. You just sort of see them all as icons on the screen and quickly go through just impulse when you make a decision or do you study each one individually? I still wish I was quicker at that process than I am, but I, I, I use Adobe Lightroom and then I, I, I rate them with a star rating with the keyboard and I go through them individually. And if it's rubbish, I'll just delete it and then I'll, I'll rate it either a three or four star if I like it. And then I'll, I'll just, um, and then that's, that probably reduces the number to about 30%. But I still find that it's a sort of binary process that if there's a strong series, I just have to bring two up on the screen and compare them both. And then go, is this one better than that one? And it's quite laborious. And I do that for a series. Um, and then sometimes it's, I just have to go to, to, to sleep, wake up the next morning and then press the delete button on one. Which, so I, I really, I find it difficult. And I, I, you know, my, my wife helps a lot with that. And I ask other friends sometimes too, <laughs> <laughs> if I get stuck. <laughs> Decision by committee. Yeah. So you started from London and you headed south. From the journey so far, what uh, would you say the impressions different counties have given you, the sort of feel, the vibe of the place, the pace, the sort of uh, temperament of the, of the countryside? Uh, each phase has been completely different. I mean, I kind of liken it to being, being like a sort of opera, that each act is completely different to the point where it's almost sort of been choreographed to make it interesting. So, you know, you've, you have Cornwall with the... The, the the rugged classic beaches the 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 history there and then just as you you've had enough of that it becomes something different you get to Exmoor and then just as when you've almost had enough of nature then you get to Wales and you get the industry and a whole different aspect of history and the poetry and and then the South England you've you've got the um the, the different layers of history and the Second World War and the um Henry the Eighth and so it's been fascinating each different area mm. um, has anything surprised you in in the journey which you didn't anticipate at all almost all of it but i mean i was very very surprised how much i enjoyed kent so close to london and how otherworldly that seemed around the isle of grain and um i mean to turn a 
was particularly keen on Kent because places like Margate, because you have you have the sea on both sides of a quite a narrow, flat piece of land. So the light reflects off the clouds in a particular way. It's very interesting and luminous spaces. But, um, but I found so the light was very interesting, but also the um, places like Dungeness, just extraordinary, otherworldly places. I mean, I particularly like creatively where you have power station industry right next to the kind of natural beauty. So you can you can and you, in in Kent say you can go from you, you walk past a firing range and you you see people running around pretending to blow up houses and then you walk to Camber Sands and there's a beach full of people doing kite surfing and then you and then you it's just the contrasts are, are kind of slightly mind bending and you, you you sleep well at the end of a day like that. <laughs> the outdoor station is your one stop shop for audio and video entertainment for the self powered traveller. You can find us online, on internet radio, on smartphones, on smart TVs, on YouTube, on Apple TV, on Now TV and on Facebook. You can also stream us live via the iTunes app or TuneIn radio app. The list is continually expanding and for full details of how to subscribe, download or stream and enjoy our massive free library, please visit theoutdoorstation.co. UK. Surely, as you do these travels, the further you 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 walk between car parks, yes. you must see a different type of person in your on your travels. Y- yes, I think it's fair to say the further from the car park, the greater the rapport with the people I meet are, and, and you, you you meet people who are often like charmingly local who've spent you know, most of their life within a few kilometres who are embedded in that piece of land. I find that a, like a beautiful thing, really. And, and and they always have a time of day and a kind of peace about them and that they always have interesting stories about their particular patch of land. And do they show a lot of interest in the project itself? Um, it, it varies. Some people think it's a bit crazy, but a surprising number of people I meet go, I've always wanted to do that. Mm. I mean, really a very surprising number of people or, or somehow it captures people's in, interest. I, I don't know why. Maybe it's about, you know, the British do love their coast and they, many people do love walking. So maybe it's a, um, they, they sort of see the, the value of it. Mm, maybe they're just envious of the time that obviously you're investing in it. Uh, perhaps, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and now the actual, the, the, the coastal walk itself, obviously there are certain sections which you have awkward access to, should yeah. we say. So what are the actual rules that you've set yourself as regards to the actual task itself? And then what issues have you found so far as regards people who are very sensitive about uh, a particular path or security or whatever? Uh, well, my, my kind of rules were I'm not taking any ferries or mechanical transport. So that means enormous detours around many of the um, estuaries and harbours. So Falmouth Harbour, for example, was a three-day detour, the extra to what if you were doing the south coast path in the traditional way. Uh, but my rules are to kind of follow the, um, the the closest safe path to the coast that, that I can. And in, in Scotland, which I haven't got to yet, obviously, but I, 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 need, I need to sort of readapt my rules because of the right to roam. But there's, there's quite a number of obstacles and problems. So you get um, industrial land, you get um, uh, very keen security guards, you've got, there's a lot of firing ranges, you have landowners that really don't care about the um, public footpaths, so they're blocked sometimes, it seems, quite intentionally, and um, barbed wire overgrown paths. Um, and then a lot of the, the coastal path actually is tidal, so you have to plan it so that you don't get caught up by the tide. 
And have you found the security guards very sensitive these days, or are they a bit more realistic as regards the actual yeah. uh, law? I mean, they're extremely sensitive, but uh, but as as a commercial architecture photographer, I have run-ins with security guards all the time. Mm. So I, the kind of letter of the law, I'm very familiar with it. So I, I, I tend not to back down unless they're stepping over their their line. Um, but 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 some sites do have their own kind of actual police presence, and that's a different different level. So so and I, I don't photograph. MOD sites or anything, which would be stupid anyway. But um, but I, I feel industrial sites are they're kind of a wonder of the modern world, and I'm I'm very keen to document the industrial sites as I travel around the mm. country. And and what's been the the response generally to the work that you've done so far and produced out of this project? Uh, it's been beyond my wildest dreams. People seem really interested and in, inspired by, it. and I, I get emails and messages most days. Of, of saying how much it means to them and people often I post two pictures a day and and, and pe- many people seem to really look forward to them so it's been it's been I mean doing a project like this and having an audience and knowing that people are enjoying it makes it you know makes it very fulfilling mm. uh, and what's your social media activity like because I know you obviously you've got your blog but uh, is it something you find not say tiresome but time consuming to keep feeding the social media um, audience it's very time consuming but i see it as a essential part of of of, of making a making a success of a of being a self-employed creative person so i mean i it's probably a day to two that i would commit each week in terms of hours to, to, to doing that so I, I i feed two image unique images a day plus plus other material that's not all about me that's related to to art or coastal photography um and no i enjoy i, I enjoy interacting with, with people in that way but yes it's it's a commitment yeah mm. So let's actually just come on to equipment uh, in mm. the two stages, really. Yeah. There's obviously the, the actual wild camping, the yeah. sort of uh, camping equipment, and uh, the photography for, for uh, the photographers amongst us who are listening yeah. and very curious to know what you've actually stripped it down to. Yeah. With your hiking experience anyway, uh, I know that you uh, have a fondness for the practical side of keeping the weight yeah. down. Yeah. So looking at the actual camping equipment, how do you limit yourself to, to that? Because I know you want to keep your rucksack down or your, the weight of the final pack down to sub 15k, or I should imagine, with all the equipment and everything, yeah. plus the water, of course. Yeah. So from a camping point of view, what actually do you take with you from a, a practical sleeping gear, cooking gear? and, and well, I'm, I'm, quite, I'm quite obsessive about the weight. I think my approach would probably be more akin to a like an american ultralight backpacker so most of my uh, my, my gear would be kind of cuban fiber like i use the cottage industry companies like z packs uh, so i use a framed cuban fiber pack that weighs 480 grams which is kind of astonishing mm-hmm. um and then i, I use uh, water bottles from the supermarket and um, i use um a terra nova uh, mountain marathon um tents and uh, I use a sort of two to three season sleeping bag, which I supplement with the warm clothes I'm wearing. So, so my, and then I use a, a jet boil to cook, although it's quite heavy. It only uses four or five grams of fuel to do a boil. So for a longer trip, it's, it, it definitely is the lightest way to go. Um, so, so do you com- use commercial foods then to just boil the water and drop the water in the commercial foods? Uh, that's that's right well actually i don't cook so much i tend to just uh, make brews and then i'll eat cold food or or yes as you say i'll have uh, i use commercial foods here so presumably then as you if you have the opportunity if there's a cafe or whatever you'll eat and and use that as main sustenance rather than keep carrying too much uh, on the food side very much so yes but 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 again in the remote parts of wales scotland i i I, 
expect it will be 10 days pretty much self-sufficient, mm. where, where, where I'll have to think much more carefully about this. So I presume when you said the um, Terranova, you were talking about a laser competition tent. That's right, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. laser comp, okay, yeah. uh, and a two-season bag and sleeping mat. What sort of sleeping mat do you use? I, I use the, um, the uh, Thermarest Neo Short, and then, mm. then I use a, a kind of solid pad that's the back system of the backpack to, to do with my feet. Mm. So my, my base pack weight is about five kilos, so that would be everything I need camping-wise, excluding food and fuel. So food and food and fuel would add about two or three kilos to that, and then the camera equipment would add three kilos to that. And one question that immediately comes to mind with any camping trip, yeah. we all go through it. What's been your best bit of kit and your worst bit of kit? Oh, the, I mean, the Thermarest Neo is, is extraordinary. I'm a side sleeper and, and that, that I, I sleep really well on that with that. And um, worst bit of kit, um, oh, the rucksack liners always tear, don't they? <laughs> Which leads us nicely into the, the, the camera equipment, really, because I know, obviously, the camera manufacturers and, and photography shops like to sell you this vast array of heavy padded bags. Yeah. Now, if you stripped it down to a Z-Packs mm. um, rucksack, what protection are you actually putting uh, around your photography equipment? Well, that's a very, very good question, because I think most of the backpacks that are sold simply don't function at all, because it, it, for proper outdoor use, I mean, if you get a proper downpour of rain you have to protect things in some kind of a waterproof container and there's there's none out there at all that do that uh, apart from very heavy duty kind of rubberized zipped bags by low alpine which mm. which weigh of three kilos and um unergonomic and you've got no space for camping back i, I use a, a, a padded insert mm-hmm. so it's it's by a company called mountain um uh, mountain forge but but actually there's an awful lot on ebay and amazon about 10 pounds they're just they're called padded insert i think they're often popular for putting courier bags or handbags and it's just enough to keep it's it weighs less than 200 pounds 200 grams it's just enough to keep the the lenses padded and then i use a a roll and clip canoe bag over that and i keep that in the mouth of the of the backpack okay so let's now actually go on to the photography equipment itself then could you just describe us the range of of equipment you take i'm sure people visualize a, a pack full of lenses and several cameras and tripods but i'm sure it can't be that no it's i've, I've got the, the whole camera system is is i've got it down to 300 three kilograms so it's it's one um one body which is the canon 5 dsr uh, with two two lens two zoom lenses so it's a 24 to 70 and uh 70 to 300 um and they're um image stabilized professional quality lenses and i do my approach with some abstract images is that i do a lot of work at the longer end of the telephoto so that lens is kind of a quite a beast it's it's over a kilo in weight the lens alone but it gives me a a, a, a opportunities that that a a shorter lens wouldn't and so that's three items and then what about the spare batteries and sd cards obviously yeah so um, as you mentioned earlier, the, um, the the data storage is a huge issue. So I have a, a, a huge number of SD cards and um, at a, quite a huge number of batteries. So I, I, I kind of work on a battery lasting two days. So if, if it's a 10 days without electricity, I, I would work on five batteries. So you don't calculate for a stop at some stage to do some charging in a pub or a cafe or something? Um, That's the ideal process, and when that opportunity arises, I do. But if I can't, I'm camping for a protracted period, I carry more batteries. Okay. 
So that's uh, that's uh, obviously the camera equipment and batteries. Uh, what about tripods or monopods? Anything like that? Um, no, I don't. I, 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 I actually, that was I started with a tripod for the first thousand kilometres. I carried a tripod, but I, 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 I used it little, so little that I didn't think it justified the weight. The actual times you take the pictures, mm. um, you say obviously you work through the day to be in the right place for the light. Mm. Is it a general rule of thumb still work for you that is sort of a, a, an established one in photography an hour before sunrise, an hour after sunset is a full day? Yes, very much so. But but, but it, it has to be said that those sort of dawn, dusk, golden hour times, it, it can be quite a cliched time if you're, say, for example, St. Michael's Mount at those times, which I did. I camped specifically to do that. Um, but I wouldn't say it was the, the picture of this trip that I'm most proud of because it's it's very similar to many other types of pictures. It tends to be when something serendipitous happens. There's a weather front passes. There's a massive black sky. A tiny bit of sunlight shines on a particular landmark or, or it could be just a, a farmer's field in a beautiful way. Um, so it's, it's being there at the right moment that, that, that gets me excited about this project. And places that are well known yeah. uh, that that you might have in in your mind visually yeah. before you get there yes. as, as a as a uh, tourist spot. Yes. Do you find it difficult to actually see it differently? Do you, do you when you arrive there, as you say, St Michael's Mount, taking that for an example, it's obviously in your head before you get there. Yes. To see the type of images that you're looking for, do you find that quite a difficult process because it's quite imprinted before you in, in your mind? Very much so. It's very, very difficult. And especially if I research it and then I see, you know, all the other great photographers mm. work and then it sort of can be like, oh, why, or what, what can I do to add to this? So it is, it is difficult. But, but I mean, the, because of the, the walking process is quite meditative and I think it, it, it gives you a different relationship to the landscape because you're there for so long that I think that that can give you an edge because you can kind of get the smell of the ground in a way that you can't if you turn up by car get your snazzy gear out and just go for it so mm-hmm. I so what do you, do you feel you've learned in this trip so far well, that is a good question what have I learned that every kilometer of this country has got some value in and is different in a in a different charming way um, I've learned that the weather forecast is not to be trusted. <laughs> the, the even terrible days tend to have a, a few glimmers of, of beauty in it. And that, that the, and in a way, the sun always does come out again and the storms only last a relatively short amount of time and, and persevering through it um, gives rewards. And do you, do you ever get into conversations with, I mean, photography is a common hobby, obviously. Yes. Uh, there must be many people you've met with uh, assorted equipment. And do you ever get absorbed in photographic conversations halfway through? So, so sometimes, I mean, it's, it's often this, this strange moment of, if it's a beautiful light and other, other photographers have worked out, this is a good time and, and you see some other guy with a tripod and there's a sort of a wave and a nod of acknowledgement. But, but, but most people in that situation are, are in the, they're in the zone, they want to do their thing. Uh, it's often people that talk more about the gear, are, are, are perhaps not so interested in the artistry, artistry of it. But yeah, pe- people do do come up and, and talk about the gear. Yeah. Before we started this interview, we were talking a bit about the life of a commercial photographer, yeah. a freelance photographer these yeah. days, and it's a lot tougher than it, than it used to be. Very much so. I'd like yeah. to just explore that with you yeah. a bit, if I may. Yeah. What, what, are, what are your thoughts on it at the moment, actually? Well, I see it as a healthy thing because I think what makes a, um, a viable commercial photographer is is having a creative vision rather than having a particular expensive bit of kit, which used to be the entry parameter in the past. Um, but because 
professional quality equipment is relatively affordable. It, it can't be about equipment now. It has to be about having a unique creative vision, which I think is a good thing because it's, it's not, it's not um, uh, you know, to say in any specialism, whether it's wedding or architecture or landscape, it, it's, it's highly, highly competitive within those fields. Because creative vision is the defining aspect of photography now, um, th- 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 that means that the people are looking for and recognise and value it more, I think, than in the past. So there's more photography in art galleries. There's more interested in the art side of photography than the past. And that sort of coincides with it almost being harder to make it commercially. So it's an interesting interesting world. I think you know, a lot of people spend a lot of money on on equipment and then they get to a point maybe after a few years of reading the how-to photography magazines they want to push it a bit further and create their own language so I think there is an interest in that more than in the past and as the projects develop now um, here we are say uh, 25% of the way through a quarter of the way through have you uh, found the interest in the project around the coastal areas evolving into a much greater interest as you travel Yes, very much so. I think people are su- surprised about what's what's out there, and uh, and so I have sort of faithful followers that follow from the day one, and that, and that kind of in- increases the further I go around. So, where are you up to now? Well, I'm, well, tomorrow I'll be going to Cardiff, so so I'm in um, Glamorgan. Okay, and is there any particular part of the rest of the trip you've got to do that you're looking forward to? Well, the next bit I'm really excited about Tata Steel, the industrial part of Glamorgan, and the, and and then the Gower Peninsula. So you've got the, the, the natural beauty, Britain's first national park, with this this um, industry. You talked about looking at other people's Im- imagery. I looked for pictures of the, the, some of the steelworks near Cardiff, and there were about five online. So it's people sort of block out things they don't want to see just as an aside a practical point uh, question really in something like an industrial area like mm. that how do you manage regards the wild camping oh, I, I kind of avoid it i mean even uh, even tata steel which is, you know was europe's biggest steel plant it's, it's only a few kilometers long so i mean with a i walk an average 26 kilometers a day up to 40 so i can always go go just a bit further out to somewhere that's pleasant but I, I do plan in advance approximately where I'm going to camp within a few kilometres so that I don't get stuck in the middle of a steelworks. <laughs> <laughs> not, not a good sleeping in the security yeah, cabin. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> not a good idea. Well, uh, thank you very much indeed for your time. It's been a fascinating uh, conversation and, and everybody obviously is going to be looking at your blog and, and uh, the information and the images that are there, which are superb. But as I always like to do with something like this, because you've had now more experience with number of people you've spoken to and the interest and the questions you've been asked of all the things i could have asked you what should i have asked you oh wow Uh, i think you touched on it earlier it's being open to chance when you're on a walking landscape photography project so to not be too concerned about a specific aim when you start out and to be open to the chance encounter be that of of weather or the people you meet and that these random things can lead, lead to a extraordinary voyage of discovery well i hope you enjoyed that quinton and his project is fascinating i'm sure you'll agree so i hope you have chance to go and look at the perimeter.uk website and if it takes your fancy do purchase a picture or two 
if you like his style. There are one or two pictures he's allowed me to use on the Outdoor Station website to give you a, a flavour of uh, the sort of style that he does. But I think it's uh, it's a great project and certainly really interesting to support it. I look forward to possibly speaking to Quinton when he actually finishes the project and see what he's learned and developed about his style and, of course, about the wild camping and some of the adventures he's had on route. So I think that pretty well brings me to an end. I'm not too sure who I'm going to be speaking to over the next seven days, but I'm certainly going to be speaking to somebody off my list. So do stay tuned for that. I'm trying to release these every Friday if I can. There's loads more of the information on theoutdoorstation.co.uk. There are new videos coming out as well. And of course, please don't forget, do join the newsletter and make some suggestions of people of interest yourself. And to finish off with another one of these outdoor sayings which I'm picking up as I go along this one from David Bowie I don't know where I'm going but I promise it won't be boring bye for now thank you for listening to this podcast to hear or see more from our extensive free library please visit theoutdoorstation.co.uk dot uk